Did you know that 17 months of our lives are spent waiting for food? That we spend 17 months of our lives waiting for food to come to us. Did you know that? I didn't. I looked it up. I looked at things we wait for. We spend 13 months waiting for our children. Now, I assume that's just a particular child because I feel I got three and I feel like I've done more than 13 months of waiting uh, for these kids. We spend six and a half months waiting for our partners. Allegedly, that breaks down further to one week of waiting for the husband and 25 weeks of waiting for the, for the wife. Hey, I don't do the stats. I might have made that one up, but um, yeah, we spend 5.5 months waiting for slow technology. You will spend 5.5 months of your life watching that little spinning wheel on your phone or whatever. We spend 4.5 months standing in queues, four months waiting for a kettle to boil, which I feel is productive and not a bad thing to do. In a lifetime. Yeah, don't panic, Andreas. Plenty of time this year. But, mate, have you stood in a, in a line at Australia Post? Yeah, you bet you have, because we've spent a collective 58,333 days waiting in a line at Australia Post in the last year. As Australians, that's what we did, Christmas being the main offender. In the last 12 months, Australians have also spent nearly... 100 million hours waiting on hold. Oh, this is like being on sale of the century. Yeah. Survey said, well, no. Um, just to be told that you are number three in the line, that you're valuable uh, while you're listening to elevator music and stuff like that. We spend a lot of time waiting for things. You know what I've done, Luke? I've just realized I don't have the clicker. So it's up to you, mate, to, to get us through the slides. We spend a lot of time. In a universe that's created with time, we spend a lot of time waiting for things. There are things uh, that we don't mind waiting for, things that are good to wait for. Like Luke, as he brings me my clicker. Thanks, brother. That's all good. He even turned it on for me. Like... We don't mind waiting for babies to arrive. We don't mind waiting for crops to come and to be harvested. Because there's a, even though that in those things there's some frustration sometimes, uh, you know, we can get impatient with them, there, we have this gradual evidence that we're moving towards a fixed date, a fixed event, and that it's going to happen. So that, that way it's okay. Like you know that that child is not going to live inside you forever. Uh, it's eventually coming out. But waiting for something that has no fixed arrival time, even something as short-term as being on hold to the ANZ bank, can get discouraging. You begin to question the investment versus reward of, the, of this time. You start to ask the question, how long? How much longer am I going to be on hold? And you begin to have these arguments with yourself about the time that you've invested and whether it's reasonable to hang up and is that time wasted? And, and, and if you, you have the tension of, oh, if I hang up, maybe, maybe I'm next. Maybe uh, they're going to come to me and I'll have hung up before I should have. Who knows what's going to happen? But the pressure of what you're actually missing out of in the world, what you're not getting done, actual work, watching cat videos on TikTok breaks you, wears you down, and you lose heart and you hang up. It's that feeling of losing heart as you wait that Jesus now addresses. 
In the narrative and in the story of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has just finished answering the question of when will the kingdom of God come? They've been waiting and waiting. They want to know when the kingdom of God is going to come. And Jesus has said, and he's answered that question to say, it has and it will. The kingdom of God has come in a very real sense. It has arrived through uh, the ministry of Jesus. In Jesus, we see the love and the mercy and the relational justice of God being executed in people's lives. As Jesus does things like reverse the power of sin, reverse doing that physically in people's lives as he heals them spiritually, relationally, through his word and through his deeds and through his miracles. That's what we see Jesus about. And then we see in Jesus' death and resurrection uh, the inbreaking of the forensic justice of the, of the kingdom of God, being executed as the penalty of sin is dealt with. And the renewal of all things, this is what we wait for, is validated and, and imputed to us. These are the two uh, inbreaking realities that Jesus has accomplished. The one remaining dimension, one big cosmic reality, of the kingdom of God that has not yet decidedly been achieved is the wiping away of the presence of sin. That's a future event that will take place when the Son of Man comes again and we are waiting for that day. We are waiting for that event to happen when, when total universal peace is established, when sin's presence is no more. Like Jesus has broken the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin is still something we wait. And, then, and until then, Jesus tells a parable like this one to instruct people who have entered into the first two transforming realities, the first two active um, agencies of the kingdom of God, you know, the overcoming of the power and the penalty of sin. It gives this parable so that we wouldn't lose heart as we continue to grow in those things, as we can continue to work in our expressions of faith in those things, as we continue to wait for the presence of sin to be gone. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus ties the environmental nature of our faith as we wait to the activity, the relational activity of prayer. There is a particular type of faith, faith that comes to life out of encountering Jesus' saving work in our lives over the power of sin, Jesus' authority over the penalty of sin in our lives. It fosters in us a certain type of faith that relentlessly, tirelessly, rather stubbornly expresses itself in prayer for both the growth of those realities in our lives and the completion of them and, and then to see those things coming to life uh, in the world around us. So Jesus tells this parable to encourage those uh, who in faith are participating in the activity of the kingdom and who are waiting for its completion that they ought to always pray and never lose heart. Now often parables uh, often parables you know, the listener has the task of interpreting the parable. You know, Jesus says things like, those who have ears, let, let him hear. And we're left with that task. But not on this occasion. Jesus makes the point right out of the gate. He tells us what's going on. Faith, relentlessly, tirelessly expressed in kingdom-shaped prayer, is what Christians ought to be about as they wait. 
This parable is not merely about encouraging us to fervently pray, but to fervently pray for the continued activity of the kingdom of God, for the continued activity of justice and renewal that the kingdom of God has brought in and is bringing in. And to continue in that in the face of adversity, in the face of hostility, to persist in that under all kinds of ordeals, to not lose heart, not to become lazy or or callously indifferent, to not lose heart, to become faithless in our lives. The possibility of losing heart, of becoming functionally faithless was raised in a way earlier in Luke 17, 22. Uh, Jesus says it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard as you wait for the day of the Son of Man. You're going to long for that day. It's going to be hard. Nothing reflects the state of a person's faith in God more than the content and the consistency of of their prayer life. We need to have uh, kingdom-shaped prayer lives that, that, that are engaged in the now of the kingdom and are praying toward the coming of its completed uh, dimensions and aspects in the world. The story of this parable is sketched out, though, in, in vague terms, but it's also conveyed in very strong contrasts Jesus says, in a, in a certain unnamed city, it's kind of vague in its, in its description, and that's because parables, uh, while they contain accurate principles, they're not historic events. They're just stories that are made up that contain truth principles. And then there's a man, an unnamed judge, who uses his power and privilege to serve his own advantage. He is a picture of corruption. Um, He is not in this parable for us uh, to compare to God, but rather he is in this parable for us to contrast him with the character of God. And he's why this parable is sometimes called the parable of the unjust or the unrighteous judge. It's taken from Jesus' own words down there in verse 6. The phrase unjust, unrighteous judge should cause us, as we hear that language in there, should cause us to kind of stop, even grieve, to be disappointed, it should stop us because this man's character, as he's being described, is in contradiction to his calling. Back in the day, back in 873 BC, when judges were being uh, appointed for Judah, the southern Israel, King Jehoshaphat said this. He said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality in taking bribes. And yet at the same time, like we we know that this guy's character is in indifference, but at the same time we kind of know that. We're shocked by it, but we kind of roll our eyes in agreement with it. Because we know all too well that corruption denies justice just as it did back then. It exists now. We experience it now. We actually live in a state in Victoria that mandates and legislates um, not just mandates and legislates a lack of justice for the most vulnerable. And it doesn't just mandate it. It celebrates it. 
As one Victorian pastor wrote, we invite and protect the killing of the unborn and the terminally ill in the name of kindness, in the name of choice. Like our laws move towards taking justice away from the most vulnerable and we celebrate it like it's a good thing, like we're moving forward. However, this particular judge, unlike our modern legislators, knows he is without a moral compass. He's not fooling himself, that he is without grace and mercy towards those under his jurisdiction and care. Jesus describes him as neither fearing God nor respecting man. He is the total opposite of what both the Old and the New Testaments require a person's position of heart to be, particularly judges, that they should love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength and that they should love their neighbours. The judge, though, in this parable is ungracious, unloving, unmerciful and ungodly. The kind of unit who only did the right thing when it was towards his own self-interest. And then there's a woman, an unnamed woman, who wanted justice against an adversary and who would not stop fighting until she obtained it, which is why the parable is also sometimes called the parable of the persistent widow. As a widow, she is one of the most vulnerable members of society. God, who is described as the defender of the widow, the defender of orphans, has designed his laws to intentionally protect and give special favour to widows, to orphans, to the most vulnerable. His laws are designed to set culture so that culture should naturally lean towards protecting the most vulnerable. So the idea that a widow has an adversary, someone acting unjustly towards her, should shock us as well. It's designed to shock the audience. When she was attacked by an enemy, no one came to her aid. She has no kinsman to come, no relative to step in and defend her cause. And she is too poor to hire a lawyer and she is too poor to bribe this judge. And even though in the context of this story, her cause is just, her cause is one of righteousness, she has found herself at the mercy of callous injustice. The only asset that she has is her own dogged persistence and understanding and confidence in God's law. This woman assumes an unusual, uh, shocking initiative of responsibility for her own well-being. Like nobody's looking after her, so she's got to take on this initiative herself. Initiative of this self-presentation through which she continuously and just relentlessly uh, just presents her case to this judge for justice. And we should read that as a shame and indictment on the community around her. And we should read that as a call to the church to say, when we are not, when we are not pursuing justice for the most vulnerable, for those who you know, had the suitcase beaten out of them, shame on us. We are to understand this widow as a model of faith exercised in relentless petition of, of prayer. That's what's being described here. 
in an unjust world whose actions are shaped by the character of God and not her own environment and not her circumstances. That's why she comes to us as a model of faith that gets exercised in prayer. Both characters appear as prototypes and they occupy different ends of the power and privilege continuum. The judge, a picture of wickedness, using his power for his own interests. A widow, a picture of righteousness, acting out of her weakness, acting out of her humility, but acting out of faith in the word of God. There's a humorous twist in this parable. I think it's humorous. I think Luke kind of thought it was funny too because it seems like Jesus was being humorous himself as he told this story. Luke records the, the interaction with the judge in the language of a boxing ring now to describe, the, he's describing the widow as a, a boxer in a boxing ring. Our, our mate, a big boy, our unjust judge gets the sense that if he doesn't get justice for this widow, she's going to kick his door in and punch him in the face. It's probably a little bit more UFC, but but the the translation or the little translation of the words here is that the judge is worried that this widow might harm him, might, might black out his eye. Every time I think of this widow, I actually see my mum. And you can think, you will know people like this. People who, my mum is the most humble, uh, kind person you will meet. But there is a ferocity to her that is fortified with a faith and an understanding of the heart of God that just simply will not tolerate injustice. That's what this woman's like. She will advocate through uh, her private prayer life and her public discourse, never losing heart. Her humble means and appearance are offset by her dependency in God, a God who is just and loving. Our big boy judge, who no doubt sits down at the pub and tells all his mates about how he flexes his political muscle in this town, is scared of this widow. She has some fortitude. She has some courage. She has some faith that won't allow her to lose heart. Who knows, he thinks to himself. This is, I'm not used to dealing with people like this. She might just roll up on me one day and hand me a beating. She won't because her faith is her resource and her persistence in righteous petition is her weapon. But this is the kind of crazy thinking that haunts the minds of the wicked. They see people through the lenses of their own experience and their own existence. This corrupt judge has not had a change of heart. In fact, his own self-assessment is that even though he still has no fear of God and he could give a rip for people's welfare, he's still in that framework. But true to form... Staying in character, this judge is motivated by his own self-interest. He now sees that getting justice for this widow benefits himself. He's, he, he's worried about how this widow is going to make him look. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual 
coming. Well, with this rather shocking um, situation painted, Jesus, who Luke now describes as or refers to as the Lord, and Luke puts this in there to emphasize the authority of Jesus' teaching and the point that he's going to make. Jesus said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not the God and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him night and day? Will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find, and you should insert in there, this kind of faith. This kind of faith that we're seeing in the widow. Will he find that particular kind of faith on earth? Jesus asks his listeners to hear and observe the actions of even an unjust judge it's a call to learn again from lessons about discipleship and kingdom living from examples seen in the world. Just like the lesson we saw of the dishonest manager back in Luke 16:8, the disciples are to see the importance here. The lesson here is action over acquiescence when it comes to seeking justice, of exercising faith. Um, even if that action requires them to act outside of the script provided by an unjust world. They are to be defined by their faith in God, not the oppression of corrupt systems. Jesus is not celebrating this unjust judge. Rather, he is using him as a contrast against what is... The, he's using him as a contrast against the known character of God. It's an argument of the lesser to the greater. It's the argument of, well, if a, if a corrupt judge could act like this, then how much more God? Rhetorical question, you should know. The parable comes at the end of a long section in Luke that has reminded his, the listeners, you and I, of the gracious and attentive and uh, beneficent character of God. A God, a, a God, a, a merciful Father who gives daily bread, who forgives sins, who brings the qualities of the kingdom of God into the lives of his people, who protects them and empowers them. It is God's good pleasure to give those he cares for um, the transforming goodness of the kingdom of God. A persistence and tenacity can move an unjust judge to deliver justice, how much more will persistence and tenacity of God's people in the prayer for justice, in the prayers uh, for the qualities of the kingdom to God to take hold and be delivered, come about by God, whose very nature is justice? Like how much more is a God who's inclined to these things going to deliver them? And it's not that as we pray, like as we, as we approach God like this, that we're, we're talking God into doing something that he doesn't want to do. But rather, like this widow, we're simply agreeing with God that he be true to himself, that he act in the world consistent with himself. Taking the lesson of the persistent widow and applying it to the character of God is designed to encourage us even more and more to seek God. And, and to persistently approach him and to pray to him 
in accordance with his character. God is everything that the judge is not. And every one of God's perfections, he's slow to anger, he's trustworthy, he's filled with unfailing, faithful love, mercy, kindness, and goodness. All of these attributes, God uh, defends the widow, delivers the oppressed. God is always on the side of the right and against injustice. And it's God's good pleasure to be uh, for his elect. Like these are the known characters of God. These are the, this is the framework in which we come to God. It's God's promise that he will deliver justice. And as we read this, it's sort of like he's going to deliver it speedily. And so we think, ah, oh, we think in the framework of, of it'll come quick. But it's more about that his justice won't be frustrated. His justice won't be slowed up. It won't be held up or delayed by the so-called powers of this world. It will come exactly at the time that God has planned for it to come. And that may not be when you want it, but it may be. This may mean that you will not see all the answers to the justice we pray for in this life. Nevertheless, we are to be like the widow and persist in faithful action of prayer, knowing that God, in the end, will render all things perfect. Perfect justice throughout the entire universe. He will straighten out every uh, distressing situation that no one around us could make right. God will answer our prayers out of his wisdom and his timing and he will advance his glory and as he does, he will strengthen our faith. The word elect here has had a fair bit of ink spilled in trying to define exactly the who and the how of this group of people. The fact is, though, that they, they exist. There is a community of God's people described as the elect, and they are known individually and personally by God. It's a relational title that describes our acceptance by God and directs his love and his power towards us. It means that we have a claim on God that the widow never had on the judge. And that's the characteristic of the elect. Like they, they, the other characteristic of the elect is that claim is that they cry out. The, the elect are identified by the fact that they approach God. They cry out day and night. That should be the distinguishing, the, the, the countercultural characteristic of, of the Christian. That, that they actually cry out to God. That they actually approach God. If that ain't you... If you're not being described here, there's probably some work to be done. Timothy Keller has said that only the child of a king would dare ask for a glass of water at 3 a.m. in the morning and the elect, this, this relational community of people, have that kind of access to God. They cry out day and night. God has sought us. God has saved us. God has used the pouring out of his justice against sin on Jesus so that we could have the pouring out of his kingdom in and on us. And we are to pursue its activity with a relentless faith in, in, nurtured in the goodness of God. Jesus finished this parable with an argument, an, uh, with an urgent question. 
And now the issue of time uh, is transferred from our experience of seeking justice to Jesus' coming and bringing of justice. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find this kind of faith on the earth is a better translation. Will he find people engaged in faithful, persistent prayer for justice in this world? Despite their environments, despite their lack of political or social power, will the church and the people of God have the same kind of confidence in God that sees them persist in prayer for God's kingdom to come, for justice to be brought? Or will the waiting aspect of prayer see us lose heart? Will it see us hang up on God because we feel like we've been on hold for too long? Persisting in prayer means exercising faith in God who has made his goodness known to us. Not just known, but experienced. Like it's not just some kind of knowledge, but an actual experience. You, you experience the kingdom of God coming into your life, transforming the power and the penalty of sin. Do you not? We wait for his presence to go. Persisting in prayer means coming to God with our personal requests, spending time each day relationally with God in prayer for his provision of our needs, spiritual and physical, and not just for car parks and health, but for holiness and helpfulness that we would be actually active agents living out the kingdom in a contrasting way of life. We, we come in prayer for protection of our faith against the evil and injustice and for the lived out evidence of that uh, implementation. We pray for peace. We pray for peace to transcend and overmaster all the broken relationships and systems of this world that can only be reconciled by grace. And we must tenaciously pray for these things. And we must pursue these things. We pray for God's power to triumph in our ongoing war against sin in our, in our lives personally and in the world around us. And Jesus is saying not to lose heart in this. To stop praying is to functionally say we no longer have faith in God. No longer have faith in him to be who he is. It takes faith to persevere in prayer. Faith that kicks in doors. Faith in God and all the promises that he has made to us in Jesus. Augustine said this, When faith fails, prayer dies. In order to pray, we must have faith. We must have faith in the saving work of Christ and faith in the love and the justice of God. All the attributes of God that this parable reveals by contrast, like the, the, the love and the justice of God are contrast against this unjust judge. It is because we have faith that God cares about us individually and personally and that, it is, and that it's his good pleasure to do what is right that will see us continue, that will see us persist in prayer. Like if that's a, if that's a known relational reality, 
then that's going to see you persist in prayer. It is because we have faith that God cares about this world and all the people in it that we continue to pray for justice. And the question is, when Jesus comes, will he find that kind of faith? Faith that actually threatens the broken systems of this world, that threatens the broken relationships of this world. A faith that doesn't fit inside the scripts and cultures that, that Christianity is being tried to push into. A faith that actually does want to punch evil right in the face. Will he find a faith that challenges injustice and cries out day and night for righteousness? Will he find his people, the elect, those who are in this relationship with God, in the relentless business of praying for the kingdom? Will he find them praying for God to be God, for Christians to actually be Christians, salt and light in the world? Or will he find them hiding in a corner, lacking heart, because waiting for injustice and living out justice ourselves, relentlessly pursuing it in prayer, is just taking too much time. Let's pray. Loving Father, as we sit just quietly, thinking about the activity of faith that expresses itself in prayer and not just prayer for our own personal needs but prayer for transformative change in the world prayer for justice to come through your people to people who don't experience justice that they might see the character of God at work in the world through his church. Would this not be something that we tire of? Would this not be something that we acquiesce away from because we'd rather watch Netflix? We'd rather spend more time in bed? We'd rather do anything but pray. This morning we ask that you would stir in us an affection for you that sees us pray for each other, that sees us pray for this world, that sees us pray for the kingdom to come now and that holds us in place while we wait for the kingdom to be completed. And as we do, as we pray for that, as we come to life in this stuff, would a, would a watching world see people living outside the scripts that they want to push them into and just be attracted to that and want to ask questions and that we would be ready as agents of the kingdom to talk about our faith in God that makes us live and operate the way that we do. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.